Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from AARP about the 7,000-plus deaths that have occurred from COVID-19 in Ohio's nursing homes. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including information about candidates running for Congress in Ohio, the Civilian Review Board in Columbus, and what it can learn from a similar effort in Cincinnati, the effort to reduce gun violence in Columbus, and a look at Pickerington School's struggles with passing a bond issue. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. He'll talk about getting back to work, real work, instead of virtual work, while navigating the pandemic. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, LaToya Peterson, Associate State Director of Advocacy for Ohio AARP. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. What does uh, an advocate for Ohio AARP do? So uh, in the AARP Ohio office, we have our work divided up. I have a colleague who uh, covers and advocates for all of our financial resilience issues. So anything that concerns our members around the pocketbook, right, utilities, things of that nature. And I advocate for all things related to health care, which during uh, this last year with the pandemic, uh, we've tried to continue um, being very vigilant and advocating for our members. So we work with elected officials uh, from the congressional level to the state level all the way to our local level to really um, uh, shine a light on those issues most pressing to uh, 50-plus Ohioans and our members uh, at AARP. And with uh, mostly older Ohioans of uh, utmost importance to your organization and the pandemic going on, nursing homes uh, have really been a focus over the last year plus. That's right. So there are approximately 66,000 Ohioans residing in nursing homes today. We saw there were uh, more before the pandemic, but over the last year, there have been over 7,000 COVID-19-related deaths of nursing home residents and staff. To be exact, uh, I believe as of last month, it was reported that 7,232. And so although we've seen a slowing of infection with the vaccine, and it offers us great hope, we need to you know, remain vigilant, especially with the federal vaccination progress ending. Uh, so uh, we've been, you know, advocates for um, loved ones that are in nursing homes and for family caregivers prior to the pandemic, but certainly throughout the pandemic. Uh, We've been encouraging testing and that that needs to continue. We know Governor DeWine stated that a new Ohio Department of Health order uh, will exempt fully vaccinated staff in nursing homes from routine testing. Um, And we know that, you know, that that was supposed to kind of encourage uh, staff to get vaccinated because we weren't seeing um, the higher, higher numbers of staff being vaccinated. And so, um, however, the staff members who are not fully vaccinated will be required to be tested twice a week. So we've been following everything that's been happening in nursing homes and will continue to advocate for residents and family givers, their family caregivers of those in nursing homes. Those 7,200 deaths you mentioned, that's just astounding because nursing homes, you know, obviously would have a high turnover rate anyway with deaths. But when you're talking about a previously completely unknown disease, taking 10% of the nursing home population, that's just stunning. Right. So, you know, the pandemic, 
you know, um, pulled back uh, uh, the curtain and unveiled some things, right? So, but the same challenges that created pain points during the height of this pandemic are the same areas that will need continued improvement. And so that means meaningful reform around infection control and staffing in nursing homes. Uh, there was, just before the pandemic, over 80% of nursing homes, this is nationally, were cited for poor infection control, including basics like washing hands before interacting with the next resident. And with regard to staffing, ARP's most recent nursing home dashboard shows that Ohio's nursing homes continue to report staffing shortages. I believe in January there was data from the National Health Care Safety Network, NHSN, that indicated that staffing was in crisis in Ohio's nursing homes. Our dashboard shows that 30% of Ohio's nursing homes have still um, a shortage of direct care workers, uh, which is up from the national average of 22.4%. That's scary because, you know, if if these places become difficult to operate because of uh, protocol or if they're not attractive places to work because of all the, you know, additional strains. I mean, we can't afford to lose any of them because we're going to need many more of them in the coming years with the aging population. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so uh, because of that, we are, you know, asking for for proper staffing and that they have proper wages uh, because staffing continues to be an area for improvement. And we know that the amount of staff available, the quality of their training and compensation for the staff are all factors that impact quality of care, especially the rate of infection for any illness, including COVID-19 or even the flu. Talking with LaToya Peterson with Ohio AARP, uh, what uh, for folks who have loved ones in a nursing home, what are the kind of questions or scrutiny they should be giving to those facilities? Sure. So ARP has consistently urged state lawmakers to protect nursing home residents by holding facilities accountable for providing safe environments and high quality of care, um, including but not limited to a full supply of PPE, proper staffing, and the passage of common sense policies. And so um, we are asking that members ask questions about what infection control measures are in place at the facility. Where will the visit take place? Is it outdoors or indoor? We believe most of these facilities will now allow for indoor visitation, right, with some of the new health orders. We've encouraged our members to ask how much time do they have for their visits because that's changed. Um, And then can they bring a gift to their loved ones? Can they hug their loved ones? And so there's a, you know, a list of questions um, that we have as a resource because throughout the pandemic we've had resources for um, uh, family caregivers and 50-plus Ohioans. And so there are eight specific questions that we have on our resource. Um, and, you know, that can be found at um, any of our websites at www.arp.org forward slash nursing homes. Okay. When you look at the numbers, it looks like uh, the the worst by far is over in the nursing homes. Is that fair to say? Well, you know, we like I said, we are are hopeful because of you know the implementation of, of the vaccine, but it, we still need to remain vigilant, especially with the federal vaccination program ending. And so, uh, you know, we are encouraging folks to contact their elected officials, contact ARPs, but we really want to see the passage of common 
promises policies. So that includes accountability. Um, there's legislation informally known as Esther's Law, for example. Um, and it's one way that families can have a peace of mind through electronic monitoring. And this can prevent abuse and neglect and isolation uh, in, in these facilities. So although we're hopeful with the, the advent of the vaccine, we are still making sure that meaningful reform happens in these nursing homes to keep our loved ones safe. And I know we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask quickly, uh, are you advocating for or expecting any uh, increases in programming to try to keep elderly folks uh, at home more rather than uh, ending up in a nursing home? Sure. So we believe that people should age as they want. And if that means aging in place, aging at home, uh, we are huge proponents of that. Uh, We also support um, legislation to forget last General Assembly will be supporting it this year and its measures around telehealth. So uh, AARP Ohio provided proponent testimony back in March, I believe it was March 24th, supporting telehealth efforts because it helps people access health care and it makes it easier for family caregivers to, to care for their loved ones in place if that's what they so should choose. So um, our advocacy has been twofold. It has been an, an, an assurance that folks have what they need in nursing homes and congregated care facilities, long-term care facilities, but also that they have um, home and community-based services that are uh, essential to them staying and residing at home if that's the choice that they and their family caregivers have made. Latoya Peterson, Associate State Director of Advocacy for Ohio AARP. Where can folks find out info online again? Sure. So uh, we have a couple different resources. Uh, We have, you can contact or you can get on our website at www.aarp.org forward slash nursing homes. That's plural. Um, And we also have a wonderful vaccine page that provides a lot of information about the vaccine. And that's www.aarp.org forward slash OH vaccines. Um, and we also encourage people, if you are concerned about the safety or well-being of a spouse, parent, or other loved one who lives in a nursing home, contact the Ohio Ombudsman Program. The phone number that you can contact is 1-800-282-1206, 1-800-282-1206, or you can visit www.nasop.org. LaToya, thanks so much for your time and the information today. Yeah, thanks, Dave. It was really uh, wonderful speaking with you. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com, and thanks for listening. What is dedication? The thing that drives me every day as a dad is Dariana. We call him uh, Day Day for short. Every day he's hungry for something, whether it's attention, affection, knowledge. And there's this huge responsibility in making sure that when he's no longer under my wing, that he's a good person. I think the advice I would give is you don't need to know all the answers. The craziest thing was believing 
that your dad knew everything. So as a dad, you felt like you had to know everything. You had to get everything right. It's okay to make mistakes. As long as it's coming from love, then, you know, it kind of starts to work itself out. I want him to be able to sit back one day and go, we worked together, we did a good job. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Here's Tracy. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Two big races are really heating up in Ohio with new candidates just popping up and already announced candidates hitting the campaign trail early. One of the people running to replace Rob Portman in the Senate next year spent some time, in fact, campaigning. Former Ohio Republican Party chair Jane Timken kicked off a door-knocking campaign with her team in Columbus. Her goal is to make sure everyone knows who she is and what she stands for. See, the future of the Republican Party is very strong. Um, we're the ones that stand up for our constitutional rights and our freedoms and opportunity and prosperity for all Americans. I have a reputation of standing up and, and backing President Trump and the America First agenda, but I also have a reputation of being a uniter. I'm the one that's going to unite the party, and that's how I will win this race. It's the pandemic, but also it's the workforce development. It's a big issue for our employers. We need to get people back to work, but we need them to have the skills and the training to take advantage of those job opportunities. We also have to address our education system. That's going to be a big priority for me. And then the opioid addiction still continues to affect Ohioans. Other Republican candidates running for the Portman seat include Cleveland banker Mike Gibbons, former state treasurer Josh Mandel, and businessman Bernie Moreno. The only Democratic candidate so far is Tim Ryan, who is in Congress right now. A seat in the U.S. House representing Ohio has opened up as well. Congressman Steve Stivers is stepping down. We've reported this to you. And so now that 15th district is up for grabs. State Rep Jeff LeRae threw his hat into the ring. We asked him about his platform for the election. For me, it's all about safety, right? Um, safety for our economy, safety for our communities, safety for our families. Um, when you look at what's happened to our businesses uh, over the past year, right? They've, um, they've been forced to operate with their hands tied and basically in the dark, not knowing what's going to happen next. If you look at what's going on at the border right now, <clears throat> we don't have any idea of who or what is, is coming across. Um, the flow of drugs is rampant, um, and it's almost like we're taking a step backwards in the opioid epidemic because those drugs are already hitting our streets. And I don't want, you know, my children or anybody else's children to have to be confronted with that in the future. So it's something we need to get a handle on. Republican State Senators Stephanie Kunze and Bob Peterson, as well as State Representative Brian Stewart and Jeff Fix, the Fairfield County Commissioner, announced they are also running for Stiver's seat. On the Democratic side, Daniel Kilgore is running. He ran for the 15th district seat last year, but lost the Democratic nomination to Joel Newby. More candidates could certainly announce this week the deadline to declare candidacy is May 17th. You can count on Face the State to continue to cover this particular race very closely 
leading up to the special election in August. Governor Mike DeWine issued a new order for nursing home and assisted living employees. Fully vaccinated staff will be exempt from required routine testing. Employees who are not fully vaccinated will have to be tested twice a week. DeWine also announced a homebound vaccination playbook. It's designed for organizations working to make sure homebound individuals have access to the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this came as President Joe Biden announced a goal to have 70 percent of people in the United States have at least one shot by July 4th and have 160 million Americans fully vaccinated. But as the vaccination pace starts to slow, the Biden administration is changing its focus to redirect vaccines to places where people want it. Now that we have the vaccine supply, we're focused on convincing even more Americans to show up and get the vaccine that is available to them. The administration is also asking pharmacies to offer walk-in vaccines, deploy mobile vaccination clinics, and is also encouraging young people to get vaccinated. We asked Senator Sherrod Brown about President Biden's vaccination goal. Brown says there is a slowdown of people getting the vaccine, but the goal is still within reach. It's still a challenge. There are, I mean, of course, the, the early, as soon as they're available, many of us get the vaccines. But I, the reason I'm hopeful is in my conversations with the governor and public health officials, we know there are tens and tens and thousands of thousands of Ohioans, millions across the country that have kind of waited to see their friends get them, their family members, their neighbors, their co-workers, just to see if they're safe. And it's clear because of the record of public health in Franklin County and beyond that these vaccines are safe. So as more and more people see in rural areas where the take up has been a little less than in the metro areas, that people are seeing that these vaccines are safe. So I'm confident that, but I also know we've got to continue our efforts. That's that's partly the importance of Congress moving on legislation that we've been pushing on public health generally to reach people and to build confidence that these vaccines are safe. Our verified team is looking into a claim that Congress passed a bill granting people $25,000 to buy their first home. Reporter Evan Kosloff explains this isn't a done deal. The housing market is really hot right now. It's a seller's market, and buyers across the country are trying to find any way to get ahead. That led to viral posts like this one with more than 11,000 shares, which claim that a bill passed through Congress giving $25,000 to first-time homebuyers. So let's verify. Is that true? Here are sources. The First-Time Homebuyer Act of 2021, the Down Payment Toward Equity Act of 2021, and Andy Winkler from the Bipartisan Policy Center. No, that's not true. This bill has not passed. Winkler tells us that there are two proposed bills that we have to talk about here. Let's start with the Down Payment Toward Equity Act. It is specifically targeted toward first generation home buyers. In the bill text, it would allow home buyers to receive up to $20,000 in assistance or $25,000 in assistance if that home buyer qualifies as what the bill calls a socially and economically disadvantaged individual. Then there's the First Time Homebuyer Act, which would give a tax credit up to 10% to first time homebuyers. But we should emphasize that neither of these bills have passed. In fact, neither of them have moved through committee. So we can verify that this claim is false. This is not currently an option for homebuyers. With your Verify, I'm Evan Kozlov. The Civilian Review Board is new to Columbus, but other cities have had similar boards in place for some time. Up next, we examine Cincinnati's Citizen Complaint Authority to see what changes could be coming to our city.
Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Matthew. Huh? Oh, sorry. It's okay. I just need you to listen to me. I know that a lot of times, Mom, it might not seem like I'm listening to you, but I am. I hear you. And what you say really does matter to me. I mean, let's be honest. No kid likes rules, but I get why we have them. I hear you, and I know it's because you care. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thanks, Mom, for never giving up and always being my biggest fan. Thank you for letting me know what you expect so I can try to meet your expectations. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus. Now, back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. I tell Columbus, be careful what you uh, careful what you ask for. Be careful what you create. The city of Columbus now has 11 members on its new civilian review board. The group is still working out many of the details about the types of cases it will take on when it comes to police, hiring an inspector general and more. But just down the road in Cincinnati, that city has had a similar citizen complaint authority for nearly 20 years. 10TV's Lacey Crisp shows us how it works and looks at key differences compared to Columbus. Last May, cities across the country saw clashes in the streets like this during protests after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. The purpose of this board is to help restore trust between the community and the police. For too long, the police have operated without any independent oversight. Shortly after, Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther announced his proposal of a civilian review board of the Columbus Division of Police. He argued many cities across the country already have an oversight body, and it would help give transparency to the citizens they demand over police. I'm in regular contact with Mayor John Cranley of Cincinnati, uh, and so we talk about things that have worked there and things we've tried here. Created in 2003, Cincinnati's Citizen Complaint Authority receives more than 200 cases a year and investigates about 70 of those annually. CCA was created as a result of the collaborative agreement here in Cincinnati and uh, certainly leading up to the collaborative agreement, uh, you know, there, there had been some friction, uh, certainly, I think, to put it mildly between folks in the community and, and the police. The seven members of Cincinnati's board are appointed by the mayor. There are five investigators who dig into cases. They have a $900,000 annual budget. Columbus plans on hiring investigators and is expected to have an annual budget of $1 million. Unlike what's proposed in Columbus, Cincinnati's board does not have disciplinary power, but it does make recommendations. How often does it happen where the police chief or the police department says, we understand where you're coming from with these recommendations, but we're just not going to adopt them right now? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say that, that uh, we do have ongoing discussions about the recommendations. If we make, make recommendations, make findings, and if there are disagreements, that the city manager ultimately uh, has an opportunity to, to weigh those as well and to, 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 to break the tie, so to speak. 
Until the FOP contract here in Columbus is changed, the Civilian Review Board's recommendations are just that. But the Cincinnati's CCA director tells me their group gives the transparency their citizens are asking for. But Cincinnati's FOP president disagrees. You'll find that it'll do just the opposite. Instead of increasing, increasing public trust, you'll end up having uh, folks that are so determined to call out the police that they'll end up uh, being just another anti-police voice out there. Hills argues oversight bodies can be effective if they're set up right. I think there can be some sort of system that could be worked out for review if you have some balance. People in this panel that um, know law enforcement, have worked in law enforcement, and then other citizens that can give their viewpoints. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10 TV News. Hills adds that the Cincinnati CCA is slow acting and has taken up to two years to review cases. Davis explains that they have recently hired more investigators to work on cases faster. Along with the Civilian Review Board, Columbus City Council announced a new strategy to stop gun violence. 10TV's Angela Ann looks at why a criminologist thinks his plan will save lives. The headlines rarely change. The past 24 hours alone, three people have been killed. This comes after another violent weekend in Columbus and Franklin County. I mean, that's troubling. What else can I say? But for families like Betty Williams, my son was murdered, shot in the back. Everything changed March 26th when gunfire erupted and her son, Earl Simmons, was killed. Family members say Earl tried to break up a fight. But they know who, who they are. They know who they are. David Kennedy believes he knows the answer. So in, in any city, the, the violence is connected to groups. People are saying, this is enough, this has to end. It was bad before. David runs the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College in New York City. His violence reduction strategy has been a proven success in cities like Chicago, Boston, and Indianapolis. Columbus City leaders are counting on it to do the same here. What the group violence intervention does is put together a community and social service and law enforcement partnership engage directly with those high-risk people and high-risk groups. So here's what the intervention comes down to, concentrating on those groups and their connections. David's studies have shown group members, typically, they make up one half of 1% of a specific population. So if you were to pick a neighborhood of, say, 5,000 people, 25 of them are most at risk of shooting someone or becoming killed. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther says he will use David Kennedy's research to expand the city's safe neighborhoods program with other partnerships. And he believes this is the key to reducing the violence. When, when every young man in this world says, I carry a gun to protect myself, there, that doesn't make it legal. It doesn't make it moral. It doesn't mean that it's not making things worse. But he's telling the truth. Which is why the city's strategy is fueled in part by faith. Three yet-to-be-named Columbus churches will house this program to start. And they'll call on mothers who have lost children to homicides to speak directly with the groups at risk. Hoping voices of families like Jackie Chapman will affect change. He wasn't just a person in the streets, a young black man to just get killed by gun violence. He, wasn't, he was loved deeply. 
He was cared for. The type of pain that it's hard to look towards the next day to figure out what now. For Crime Checker 10, Angela Ann, 10 TV News. This new gun violence intervention strategy also partners with the Franklin County Court of Common Pleas to focus on violent offenders who are on probation or at risk to reoffend. The city plans to hire three new positions to help direct these groups to the resources that will help them find an alternate path from violence. If you want to know more about how this program works, check out an extended interview with David Kennedy at 10TV.com. This week, lawmakers pushed to crack down on distracted driving across Ohio. 47 states right now have a primary offense when it comes to driving a car with an electronic device in your hand. And Ohio could become the 48th state to make it against the law. State Representative Cindy Abrams introduced a bill in the House that would make Ohio a hands-free state. In other words, it would be against the law to drive a car with an electronic device like a phone or even a tablet in your hand. Distracted driving has become an epidemic not only in Ohio, but also across the country. Columbus already has a hands-free law on the books. The Ohio State Risk Institute reports that there are 20 cities in Ohio with a population of over 20,000 that have a primary distracted driving law. This new bill would make it uniform around the state of Ohio. Sports betting in our state is a step closer to becoming legal. The state Senate introduced a bill to move forward with the plan after months of planning. This legislation would say that the Ohio Casino Control Commission would have regulatory authority over sports gaming in Ohio. I can't emphasize it enough. What we've done in the way we've drafted this is everybody has an opportunity based upon free market principles, but we're not going to hand anybody in the revised code something on a silver platter. Uh, they have to compete. They have to show uh, that uh, whatever they're doing is meritorious. And then they have to be uh, approved by the regulatory agencies. Sports game is, is currently legal in every state bordering Ohio, except for Kentucky. Voters struck down a levy to help build a new school. It's the second time this has happened in Pickerington. Why one PTO president thinks the levy failed. And there is a push to create the state's first Asian Affairs Commission. Why the first Asian-American woman elected to the Ohio Senate says this move is critical for equality. The strength of our country hasn't just been won on the battlefield. It's won every day in our communities when we come together in our toughest times. For over 100 years, the American Legion has been strengthening communities across our nation by providing life-saving help and support to our veterans and neighbors during times like we're facing today. We are the American Legion, veterans strengthening America. To learn how you can help, visit legion.org. The thought of my sons growing up without me inspired me to quit smoking. I talked to my doctors, and then I threw away all my cigarettes, ashtrays, and lighters. I started exercising instead of smoking. Getting support from friends online kept me on track. Staying away from alcohol when I was first quitting was key. Instead of smoking after I ate, I'd get up and take a walk. I missed having a cigarette in my hand, so I'd hold a pen or a straw, anything. Until I knew I wouldn't give in to temptation, I spent more time with my friends who didn't smoke. I went to places that were smoke-free. I didn't stay quit the very first time I tried. I kept on trying, and I learned something each time. Do whatever it takes. No matter how many times it takes. I quit. I quit. 
I quit. We did it. So can you. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and CDC. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Ohio held the May primaries. While there wasn't much that you would qualify as a major race on the ballot, there were several school levies, including one for the Pickerington Local School District. And for the second time in six months, voters said no to that levy. That would have generated $95 million in upgrades and renovations for school buildings. 10TV's Brian Somerville spoke with a parent who's frustrated by the result. Back in November, this same levy issue failed by about 6% of the vote. Yesterday, it failed by more than 20%. I just am baffled by the fact that it just did not pass like this time around. Jennifer Sanders says with Tuesday's levy failure, the district is facing major growing pains. I don't know what the solution is to accommodate more kids when we don't have the room as it is. The bond would have given the Pickerington Local Schools District a $95 million boost over the next 38 years. So those were the numbers. Here's why some people say they were needed. So for every $100,000 that your home is worth, you would have paid almost $9 extra in fees a month. And that money, among other things, would have provided renovations to both Pickerington North and Central High Schools, as well as building a brand new junior high. Now, Sanders says this is a no-brainer, but 61% of voters disagree, and she might know why. By parents not voting for the bond this time around, or even, you know, before, you're you're whole, you're ultimately hurting the students. She's heard different excuses from the pandemic to some intentionally holding the district at a standstill because of its ongoing social media issues. In the past year, three incidents involving district employees have been dealt with by the board. Incidents including Black Lives Matter, police use of force, and most recently, the death of Micaiah Bryant. Incidents that bring with them polarizing opinions. Your issue that you're that you're having with the city or with the board of education ever is totally separate from what this is is to do. And opinions, she says, keeping people from having an open dialogue. She says she's tried to talk to people who are against the levy. I did too, sending out messages trying to get that other side. But messages were never returned. There is no give and take because nobody who is against the, the bond wants to discuss really why they're why they're against it. And Sandra tells me she hopes to get this issue back on the ballot in November. In Pickerington, Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. It was another blow for the Lakewood School District in Licking County for the fifth straight time that district's bond issue failed. It was an overwhelming loss with more than 87% voting against it. The hope was to replace a 107-year-old elementary school in the district. School administrators say a study showed renovating the school would be more than 80% of the cost to build new. The superintendent told us he's just disappointed for the kids. More than 70 school levies across our state were on the primary election ballots. The Ohio School Boards Association reports voters across the state approved 68 percent of school tax issues with 50 of 73 passing. OSBA says Tuesday's results show communities realize the significance of their public schools. 
As the nation celebrates Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, lawmakers in Ohio plan to submit a proposal that will create the state's first Asian Affairs Commission. 10TV's Angela Ann explains now that people in the community say the move is critical for equality. For 27 years, the Asian Festival in Columbus introduced millions of people to culture and heritage some have never seen. That is always in our uh, mind to uh, serve our community and also the community at large. Dr. Yong Chen Liu is proud to see what he started in 1995 has become one of the largest Asian festivals in the U.S. He also founded the Asian American Commerce Group in 1993 and the Asian Meal Program, which provides 350 hot lunches a week to Asian seniors in central Ohio. Those are just a few of the many ways Dr. Liu has tried to provide Asian American awareness in the Buckeye State. But there is one more mission he wants to complete. Establish an Asian Affairs Commission, which is nowhere on this list of 28 commissions in Ohio. So many communities, so many commissions already. Why not us? It is a question people like Dr. Liu hope will be rectified with Senate Bill 87. State Senator Tina Maharath co-sponsored the bill. Because we're currently the only ethnicity here in the state of Ohio without a commission. We're not the model myth minority anymore. We're not um, meant to be quiet. We're meant to have the same rights just as much as everybody else. She is also the first Asian American woman elected to the Ohio Senate. Something that people don't really understand is as Asian American populations differ, there's different cultures, different languages, different religions, and even different socioeconomic statuses within our communities. But us policymakers need to be aware of those many differences presented in our group. And that's why this commission is important because it's going to help us promote this delivery of um, diversity within our Asian American uh, population. It is a diversity Dr. Liu brought with him in 1967. He came to Ohio State University to teach mathematics. And as his family grew, so did Dr. Liu's commitment to celebrating and elevating the Asian Pacific culture. The most important thing is so-called equality. For 10TV News, I'm Angela Ann. And we thank you all for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Coming up in about three minutes on Columbus Perspective, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life. 
but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. ADHD. It's the child who can't pay attention or sit still in school, right? The answer may be yes. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, can be complicated, and it can last a lifetime. Up to 75% of children and adolescents with ADHD have at least one additional mental disorder that requires a comprehensive approach to treatment. Learn more at moretoadhd.com. This message brought to you in partnership with ADA, ACO, and CHAD. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. Joining me on the phone, he's uh, with us about every month or so, and uh, which means it's been a dozen or so times as we go through this pandemic. It's Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. How you doing? I'm doing good, Dave. How you doing? Good. Uh, thanks for talking to us. Tell us about Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, we're a nonprofit that works with uh, kids and families out in the community. Uh, we have uh, four sites. Um, we serve about 6,000 kids and their families per year through counseling services, and we run two after-school and summer programs, which um, are, you know, social distancing and, and lower numbers uh, through this year. Um, like everybody else, we've had to uh, make those adjustments. Um, but they offer uh, homework help and, and tutoring and leadership development and, and all the arts, dance, music, uh, um, uh, you name it. Any kid can find something fun that they want to do at our centers. And you've kind of been across the board in terms of how active you've been during the pandemic. Some areas not so much and others uh, hardly any interruption at all. Yeah, you know, our after-school centers first initially closed and and we uh, turned them into food distribution centers and started serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh, um, because we just needed to for the people in those communities. Um, We continue to do that today, but during uh, uh, we. So we became a learning exchange center to support Columbus City Schools, so we opened back up um, when they did uh, at a limited capacity because of social distancing uh, guidelines. So uh, those have been open. Our telehealth program um, with our counselors all went into place. But in June, uh, a few people, particularly in our, our, our workers in our trauma program, so like uh, uh, Promises, which is for uh, survivors of sexual abuse, comps is uh, children of murdered parents and siblings. We have a program for uh, kids in domestic violence situations. They started creeping back out into the community pretty quickly. Um, they wanted to. Uh, we certainly took all precautions um, because they just wanted to make sure that their kids were safe. And uh, there are some challenging environments out there for the kids we serve. So probably uh, um, half of our staff, probably more than that, probably close to 70% are now doing some work in the community. You know, we've always done outreach. So our therapy has always been in the homes um, or in the schools. Uh, and so we're getting back to that. And uh, as things start opening up, work is starting to change for everybody. That's right. And uh, I do want to mention before we get into talking about the transition back into actual work instead of virtual, uh, you have your State of the Child luncheon coming up. Yeah, we do. Wednesday at noon, it's going to be virtual again this year. Um, uh, the kids, yeah, it, it, for those that don't know, 
and our, our State of the Child is our biggest fundraiser of the year. It's our luncheon. Um, we usually have it uh, uh, down at the convention center. Um, usually about 500 people attend, and our our luncheon's always been different. So, Dave, you know, you've been there. Mm-hmm. We don't give awards to people. We don't uh, 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 invite guest speakers. We allow allow all of our kids to tell the stories, and many of them want to. Um, and we have, you know, uh, we, our music program, so the bands end up playing there. We have a dance program, so they end up doing it. Our art program, um, they sell their stuff there. Uh, um, it's really great. Uh, we have a poetry uh, um, program, too, uh, slash rap program. Um, so there's performances throughout the whole thing, and, and um, then there are just stories about people who've gone through some of our programs that talk about uh, their journey with us and it's always a very festive fun occasion last two years it's been virtual so last year and now this year but the kids have worked very hard and it's great it's a uh, um, I've, I've seen a couple of the uh, teaser videos that we've put out so far and um, you just can't help but be lifted by the joy that these kids show it, it's really a lot of fun and this is uh, coming up this Wednesday the 19th uh, and folks will they be able to access it through your website or what you know, I, I'm sure it, it'll be available on social media uh, like Facebook and stuff, but they can do dfyf.org, and, and I'm sure there will be a link there to watch it. It's only going to be about a half hour long. Um, uh, we, we don't want to – everybody's been so stuck in front of computers anymore. We didn't want to overtax people, but um, it's a half hour that I guarantee you it's going to put a smile on your face. Yeah, it's great because, uh, you know, some of these – the videos of uh, kids or, or members of their family who talk about the turnaround that – has taken place in their life and the dark places that they've come from sometimes really inspiring stuff. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I I, I have to tip my hat to those kids who choose to do that because it takes courage to do that, but they want to tell their story. And not only is it part of their healing process, it's also just a part of their journey. So um, so that's mixed up with uh, um, performances that that, uh, our kids don't always get to uh, perform in public or on stage um, and now, you know, over the Internet. So it's going to be pretty cool. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. It's uh, back to work for a lot of folks. Of course, some people, you know, no change uh, for a lot of this. They've been navigating this all along. But for a lot of uh, people who work in the offices downtown and such, it's starting to starting to creep back to nor- normalcy. Yeah, you know, and I think it's going to be, uh, what is that normalcy going to look like? I, I, I really don't think it's going to look like it did before. Um, you know, so much has changed. And, and I think, you know, this pandemic has really just taught us a lot of things. You know, people have different values now around work. They uh, they think about it differently. They think about their time differently. Um, you know, it, it's almost like a, we're all used to the normal cadence before of, of um, um, like an eight to five job. And I know most people uh, don't work that, but uh, it's different hours. But that isn't the norm anymore. Yeah, a part of it is I, I get concerned because I know from working from home, um, and I've always gone into the office I, it, uh, since the beginning, so a lot hasn't changed for me, but the building has been empty. There's been like three of us in it for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But even like you know, talking to friends and, and my wife and seeing all that, people who have been working from home, it's almost as if all the boundaries around work schedules went away. So you're, you really were working seven days a week, 24 hours. Now, not the whole time, but still available during all of that. There was no turn on and shut off, I think, for most people. And, um, and that's concerning. And, and 
uh, I think as people start to weigh that with, okay, where's my personal time? Where am I spending my fun time? I think these are just new perceptions that people are going to start entertaining and really look at what is the value of their work and, and what is the value of their personal time. When uh, that little bit of flexibility comes in, you know, where you could take a shower in the middle of the day instead of before the day or at the end of the day and eat at a different time than you used to and then pick up on the remaining work at a different time than you used to that you're not going to be able to do when you're back in a cubicle. Yeah, you know, and and so many people have not only been effective doing their job at home, but some people have just been more productive and more effective. You know, so, you know, employers have to weigh that, too. And um, I know for us, we, we are, um, we have four buildings. We're probably going to go down to three because some of our positions um, easily transition back into the home, do not need to have the office space for it. Uh, so, you know, why continue to absorb those costs when you don't need to? And, the, you know, the country's been on a huge journey, too, during all, all this, too. There's been a lot of political upheaval. There's been a lot of political discussion and obviously a lot of social justice concerns. That might end up back in the workplace, too, with, you know, masks or no masks and who knows what. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, I don't think you can avoid that. I, this is... Um, uh Everyone seems to have a voice now, and unfortunately not everybody communicates in the most effective or respectful manner. Um, I, I, the fact that that's almost like become the norm is, um, and, and that doesn't settle very well with me. Um, I think we're going to all have to revisit where are our boundaries, what are our boundaries with work, what are our boundaries at home? How do we maintain those boundaries? I think somebody will question, do I have to maintain those boundaries separate? Um, can my values and, and, and beliefs and morals um, be with me everywhere and, and my rights exercise everywhere? I think it's just going to be challenging on many different fronts. And we all need to start thinking about that. We need to think about it. Yeah, my concern with all of it is we'll come down to well, what we're in business for is mental health. Um, you know, work-life work balance has always been important from a mental health standpoint. Self-care has been important from a mental health standpoint. Um, boundaries, I think, always um, help people um, compartmentalize things, which is important from a mental health standpoint. And I think that a lot of these boundaries are now blurred. You know, this is uh, something that I, I think about when, take a town like Xenia, uh, you know, back 50 years ago, whenever, when it got devastated by that tornado. Yes. Uh, and that still happens today in towns that size all across America. A couple times a year, that'll happen. And the workplace, the school place might get destroyed. There's a lot of disruption in the town for a long time. And when people come back from that disaster, they're almost inevitably closer together. But I don't know that that's going to happen with this. You know, we've gone through... 600,000 people dying in this country, but in some ways it doesn't feel like it or there's people who don't believe it, and the country doesn't seem like it's come together like it would if a tornado had hit. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and it's kind of like natural disasters, um, everybody in a sense kind of experienced it the same way, so... Um, it's easy to join around that. It's easy to, it, it, those always do bring people together. Not everyone has experienced this the same way. 
and, and when you throw on top of the fact, I've always talked about that there really was two pandemics, uh, the first being COVID, the second uh, being um, that racism is a public health crisis, which, which over now 700 uh, uh, CEOs in Columbus have signed on um, to say that. Uh, that adds a whole new layer. I, it, it's what we will be coming back to is going to be a different environment, and people are on different sides of the fence here. Um, so it's not like a, a a tornado or a flood, which has a tendency to unite people to the healing of everyone. Um, uh, this one, we're almost going to come back that I have a right to be combative now, and uh, that's going to challenge work environments. That's a great point. That it hasn't been the same experience for everybody. And then when you look at you know, leaders like uh, Governor DeWine, he's got critics that you wouldn't normally expect to be his critics and supporters that you wouldn't normally expect to be his supporters. Right. So, you know, what, where are we going to snap back to? I think that's a big question everybody, you know, has in their mind. What are we coming back to? I was talking to a, a, a vice president of one of the major corporations this past week, uh, or major companies in this, uh, um, uh, in this city, and you know, he says we're going to have new guidelines. Like, you know, you don't. Um, we're not going to have meetings before nine o'clock. Uh, we're going to. The last meeting has to be at four o'clock, so that you have time to wrap other things up that you got to do. And we're not going to have group meetings on Friday, so that people get get caught up on their stuff. And so, the, I mean, these are just some things that people are toying with to almost balance between what we're coming from and what we used to have. And um, uh, so I, I'm really uh, interested in seeing how this does uh, unfold over the next year and what work is going to look like uh, in the year to come. Your agency is uh, aligned a lot with family dynamics and with how kids are doing. Uh, some of this stuff, I guess, they would be, kids anyway, would be a little more immune or, or disassociated with this sort of thing and, and have kind of their own issues to deal with. Well, they have the, it, it's it's a little different for them because of schools. Um, right. And you know, let's remember, you know, they can have cousins that have been in school the whole time, yet they haven't, or um, they're in this week or not that week. This has been a huge adjustment for kids, and um, uh, and for a long time, many people, particularly in Columbus City Schools, uh, uh, um, are doing everything from home, which really caused many, many challenges for many people. Um, and then you get fatigue uh, um, of, of doing that. I, you know, I. I, I couple people in my golf league are teachers and um they have expressed about the fact that uh, they've never had this many kids failing um which is difficult i mean now uh, uh there's a whole nother layer here when we talk about numbers of people who are failing that maybe never failed before um, you know that's not a positive experience it's not uh, uh something we want to uh, um have kids experience so uh, uh, we're going to have to start dealing with that too it's um, I think it's just going to shake everything up from a mental health standpoint you must be I would think excited about kids being able to get back to some form of normalcy yeah you know uh, for one thing kids need to be able to be kids um, and uh, we always want positive things uh, uh, have, have them have positive experiences um, with many kids, school was such a struggle this year. And like I said, some kids have never struggled before, and now they did. And so it's a whole new thing for them to have to experience. Um, you know, anxieties up, depressions up. Uh, uh, I mean, and on the extreme end, suicides are up. This is uh, um, this is not 
good, I, you know, as a total big system. So uh, I am looking forward to some sense of normalcy uh, just so we can bring some of those numbers down. Um, but there's a, like, you know, like we have some people with COVID that are just enduring circumstances that they're going to deal with forever. Um, my fear is that we're going to have some uh, people coming out of this, not just kids, but adults as well. Um, they're going to have some enduring circumstances from a mental health standpoint. Um, and that is concerning. Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families, also a licensed therapist. Put on your therapy hat for a second here, Dwayne, and tell folks what what sort of attitude they should have as as we start to apparently pull out of this pandemic. Well, first off, be open. Uh, you know, we've all seen what how divisive everything has been over the last few years. Um, you don't have to choose a side. Actually, choose a win side, win win. I don't think anybody's looking for that anymore. They're looking for let me win, and I don't care about anybody else. Uh, we have to look at being supportive, and and when I think about being supportive, if you're going to be supportive of somebody, that doesn't mean you start off by making sure that you're going to protect your own, you know, your your side. Uh, um, we have to get back to that. We have to get back to actually caring about each other. You know, the mental health field is pretty easy for us. We talk about the people we serve. Um, we always talk about it in our field. And let's remember, we serve people. Um, I always tell our folks, you know, society judges some of the people we work with um, enough. We, we don't need to be the judges. We need to be the ones who understand. So I think understanding that everybody's coming from a different place um, Accepting that, you know, and and not always challenging that, but being open to what a new reality. Be a part of the solution. It's very easy to sit back and point fingers and, and you know, damn people and and, and look for the issues, or um, or you can try to be part of the solution in a productive manner. Um, and I think that's where we have to go. I'll tell you, we, we started around the racial issues. We started uh, evolving together committee. So we've always had self-care. We've always had uh, culture diversity trainings and things like that. But we wanted to push it a step further. And we um, really have had some staff, uh, one wonderful uh, staff person who spoke at our uh, board meeting um, last week to share with them that she was reluctant to join uh, this evolving together committee. So our agency is 40% people of color. So we, uh, we have a huge mix, and it's an opportunity really for us all to learn from each other, particularly in this year that's been so difficult. And she shared that she was reluctant because she grew up, grew up in rural Ohio, uh, and she openly shared that uh, her parents um, were racist and, and most of her family members. Um, and although she came into the social work field and she didn't believe she was, she knew uh, her fundamental beliefs of what she was raised with were going to be challenged. Um, she has loved the journey. She uh, uh, to be able to be vulnerable um, allows an opportunity for growth, and she's so excited to share that story because her fear has turned into a journey um, where she thinks it's just going to be better for her, uh, her whole life moving forward because she decided to walk through that door that she was terrified uh, to go through. So um, I think a many positive things like that can come out of this. Um, we just have to be intentional about it. Good stuff. Dwayne Casara, CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If uh, people want more information about your agency, Dwayne, where do they find it? Uh, they can check us out on the web, www.dfyf.org. Or need any services or any other information, you can call our intake department, 614-294-2661. Okay. Thanks again, Dwayne. Thank you, Dave. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.